Welcome to BFR Radio, a podcast dedicated to all things BFR. This podcast is proudly sponsored by sportsrehab.com.au, where if you want to buy your own BFR cuffs or you want more information about the type of training or you just want more information, this is your one place to go. And I'm your host, Chris Gavilio. Thanks for joining me on this month's episode of BFR Radio. Really appreciate you joining in each month and I hope you're getting lots out of these episodes. Perhaps the most exciting news in the last month or so here in Australia is that we're back in the gyms and I think for myself and a lot of my friends and colleagues out there that it's great that we're able to actually get back and do what we love and that's coaching. So good news there. Try not to dwell on the whole COVID period. One of the type of training methodologies that has really made a huge resurgence is isometric training. In particular, there was a fantastic presentation from a good friend and colleague of mine, Alex Natira, who, if you haven't seen it, make sure you do yourself a favor and Google it. He did the most practical and applied presentation on isometric training I've seen. He brought in all the science and really showed you practical ways just using a simple tie-down strap on how you can perform these exercises. And it has a great translation through to athletic performance. During the COVID shutdown period, I actually challenged myself away from more traditional high-load lifting to create my own hybrid strength program. In particular, I tried to challenge myself around the constraints of what people may have been experiencing, and in particular, that's the limited access to lots of weight and great equipment. The program in particular that I created involved combining low-load, which in this case, I actually limited myself to 40 kilos. Perhaps that was cheating in that I actually did have a bar and some weights, but I really made sure that I didn't have too much weight on the bar. I actually knew that this would not be enough external load. So I delved into my bag of tricks and used the addition of isometrics with the use of a tie down strap, thanks Unlex Natira, lifting bands because they're actually cheap and accessible that we could all purchase off the internet or from a shop, blood flow restriction as you all know I like doing, and also the addition of plyometric exercises with an actual goal to improve athletic type performance. As I've always advocated, there's no substitute for high external loads or mechanical stress. And therefore, the addition of bands and isometric straps provided that external additional loading with the minimal equipment challenge that I actually set myself. And then the addition of BFR was used because what I wanted to do here was use metabolic stress as a proxy for mechanical stress that was missing from the high loads. Now, this is just a concept in my head that's been sitting there for a while. If we've got low loads, we can add bands, but there's only so much external stress that we can add with light loads. So therefore, I thought, can this addition of metabolic stress or the blood flow restriction provide some sort of added total stress on the system to create some form of improvement in performance? And what I've actually been doing, I've been collecting both upper and lower body testing parameters for a few months. It's actually predated this COVID period. So I've actually been able to collect data as I've gone along and see the type of results that I'm seeing from the training. Now, I've done the last lot of testing just this week, and I'm actually putting more together. And it's actually some really interesting results that are coming out of this. So once I put all these results together, I'll share them with you. However, I really want to make it nice and succinct. Otherwise, I'll be talking your ear off all day. In other BFR work I've been doing, I've actually been working on a BFR use framework. And consequently, I've been actually increasing my literature reading during this period. 
And I've got to be honest with you, there's just so many different areas in the world of blood flow restriction or katsu. So if there's anything of particular interest that you want to hear on this podcast, let me know and I'll review those papers. As I'm currently sitting and I'm thinking, what's some things that people might be interested in? And there's so many great things out there. So there's certain concepts in blood flow restriction that you want to know or you're really interested in. And it could be on anything you want from basic mechanisms through use or to certain populations. Let me know and I'll uh, put a special review out there for you. Today's guest who we'll have on shortly is New South Wales Institute of Sports Senior Strength and Conditioning Coach David Young, who's the lead SNC coach for the Women's National Rowing Team, which is based out of Penrith in New South Wales. As I said, David works within the sport of rowing. And as I usually preview a paper before we go into the segment, I actually wish I'd waited for that rowing paper I reviewed a few episodes ago. And I think that with the information that David will share with us in today's episode, I felt that we probably could have had like a, a BFR rowing special. And then if you add last episode, which was a review from Sam Halley on the effects of ischemic preconditioning on kayak performance with a potential that it, I think it could actually transfer to rowing performance, then this would have been a really sports specific episode. So rather than just reviewing a totally new paper, I actually just want to do a quick summary of those two papers in particular. If we look at the rowing paper, it examined the effects of practical BFR on VO2 max during low intensity rowing. The BFR intervention group used practical BFR during boat and indoor rowing training through the use of customized elastic wraps around the thigh. It was a five week training study and they did BFR three times a week and within each session they used it for two times 10 minute lots. And this was used at low intensities which was indicative of a lactate concentration of less than two millimoles per liter. The control group performed the same training, but without any BFR. So just in quick summary there, they did a total of 15 sessions, 60 minutes per week, two times 10 minutes per session. In this study here, they found that significant group interactions were found in favor of using practical BFR for VO2 max. And in particular, they had around 9% improvement in VO2 max whereas there were no changes in the control group. Then if we move on to last month's episode from Sam Halley, where he examined the effects of ischemic preconditioning on repeat 1000 meter kayak ergometer time trial. And this was actually completed in a simulated competition format. A really interesting study where they used eight well-trained male kayak athletes. And in this study, they performed three experimental trials which each consisted of two 1,000-meter time trials separated by 80 minutes, which was kind of like what they would do in a competition. The protocol for ischemic preconditioning was completed via the application of 18-centimeter-wide cuffs in cycles of ischemia and reperfusion. They inflated the cuffs to 220 mils of mercury and held this for five minutes, and then they deflated it for another five minutes. And this was repeated for four cycles on each limb, so 40 minutes in total. And this is pretty much in line with most ischemic preconditioning protocols, inflate for five, deflate for five, and repeat for four to five cycles. When you look at the three experimental trials, the first one was they just did one lot of ischemic preconditioning, which was 40 minutes prior to the first time trial. They did the time trial, rested, and then did time trial two. The second experimental trial was two lots of ischemic preconditioning, the first one was 40 minutes prior to the first time trial. 
then they raced. And then 20 minutes prior to the second time trial, they did another bout of ischemic preconditioning. And the third experimental trial was no ischemic preconditioning at all. The big takeaway here without having to delve too deeply into the actual results is that performing ischemic preconditioning before each competition time trial actually produced a better result, which highlighted the additional benefit in comparison to just one single pre-exercise application of ischemic preconditioning. Sam also spoke about the application of this method may have benefit in other sports, in particular swimming and big wave surfing. And I actually feel that this may all be used in rowing due to the similar demands to the two sports. Taking these two summaries, I actually feel that today's episode with David Young will really complete the whole picture on the use of BFR and elite sporting environment, in this case, rowing. So without any delay, let's get into today's episode of How You Do BFR. And welcome back to How You Do BFR. And today I've got N-Swiss Senior Strength and Conditioning Coach, Dave Young. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Chris. Good to be here. So it's really great here, obviously, during this COVID period that a lot of our strength coaches are still very busy coaching online. Uh, David works with rowing, rowing Australia in particular. And I really thought it would be great to get him on, not only because I know him, he's a great bloke, he's a great strength coach, well-respected in the industry, but obviously he's been using BFR a fair bit and, and obviously worked with Ryan. I reviewed one of those papers uh, a few episodes ago. So I kind of thought it was a nice little segue to get me on board. But before we get into the details about your use of BFR, David, really love to just tell a little bit about yourself, a bit about your story and how you got to this point today. Yeah, so um, I guess my journey in strength conditioning started in the UK where I'm from originally. I spent a couple of years in the mid 2000s at the Sports Council of Wales, three years at the English Institute of Sport at Bisham Abbey where I worked with rowing and then I moved to Australia in 2009, been with NTWIS ever since then and with the national sort of centralised programme for rowing since 2016 when we moved to Penrith in Western Sydney. And in terms of the sports you've worked with, I'm assuming you've worked across a, a wide breadth, just give a little bit of indication of I guess the progression of sports and I, I guess some of your loves as well, aside from rowing that you're working with at the moment. Yeah, yeah. so I guess my early days in my internship, I worked across quite a few sports when I was in Wales, including um, squash and sailing, boxing, para sport, a lot of para sport there. And then as I sort of progressed through my career, I moved to the English Institute of Sport where my main role there initially was diving, actually working the diving program in Southampton. Um, but I also work with rowing quite a lot there and my role, there progress more and more to rowing. Also worked with some hockey and some netball players and a bit of para sport there. First moved into Entwis in 2009. Um, I had five sports at the time. That was quite a different sort of period for me. And that included rowing, track and field, um, spring canoe, uh, men's hockey and men's soccer. And that whittled down over the years to just um, rowing and cycling. And now I'm just with rowing. So um Rowing's pretty much been a bit of a staple for me since 2006. Personally, I'm sort of uh, keen on travel and and play sport as well. Until recently, I was still playing both football and soccer, as you guys like to say, and yeah. um and cricket. But um, it's been a bit more difficult with work in the last few years. Yeah, definitely. And what brought you to Australia in the first place? Uh so in 2001, I, I did a masters at Sydney Uni. Actually, I came over, did a bit of travel studied, got a bit of work experience while I was over here as well. And while I was over here, I met a girl. Um, she moved to the UK with me, but we ended up moving back to Australia in 
get to 2009. Unfortunately, it didn't work out in the long run, but um, I actually stayed here after that. And you said you studied uh, Masters in Sydney. What was that on? Uh, sports science. Yeah, exercise and sports science at Sydney University. Yeah, and a coursework course. So obviously, strength and conditioning encompasses a wide array of different elements and different philosophies and, and so forth. And, and although I want to get into the BFR, I, th- I think, you know, I'm just thinking here that you've got such a vast experience, you know, in your time there, are there certain philosophies or certain periodization schemes or types of training that I think you, you really seem to gravitate towards? Yeah, so I think um, one of the things that's happened during my career, which maybe in some ways a good thing, but some ways a bad thing as well, I've become very much gym-based. Um, like working with cycling and rowing, I've been pretty much prescription of strength training, rehab core, but there's not been much sort of um, prescription of speed, agility, metabolic conditioning or anything like that. So I, I, I guess strength training has become my thing. So I, I love working with explosive, powerful athletes, and I'm, I'm really enjoying trying to build that in my um, in my rowers because obviously they're largely an endurance event, um, but we're still trying to push sort of those strength and power gains. And I'm fortunate in my current setup where we um, – you know, we, we're preparing for a world championships every year, so I can put together a, a long-term plan on how we're going to develop all their different physical sort of capabilities over the course of a year, um, making sure they're peaking at the right time and delivering performances at world level. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think there's always those fundamentals that when you strip away anything that you just need powerful, strong athletes. And uh, mm-hmm. in terms of that, you really need a barbell and some plates and away you go. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And obviously, we have lots of tools in our toolbox, and this being uh, BFR Radio, blood flow restriction is, I know, one of many tools that you actually use. So I thought it'd be really great to get you on board and just tell a little bit about how you got into BFR in the first place and just on how you're applying that in the S&C setting. Yeah, so um, I guess my story of BFR goes back quite a long time to probably mid to late 2000s. I remember um, listening to a podcast when I was driving down to Southampton when I was working the divers, um, and this was kind of long before podcasts became like standard, like mid two thousands, and they they were talking about it on this podcast, and not only did the presenters, whilst they were talking about some of the strength gains you could get with maybe some lower load exercise, not the presenters still sort of gave it short shrift really, and I, I just remember listening to it and thinking, oh, that's just crazy. Um, why would you do that? Like, who would even think that up? And the question was, why would you do deliberately low low load strength training when you could do high load strength training so i probably didn't look at it for a number of years and i remember being back in the uk on on a trip over christmas in 2011 and i was chatting with a former colleague of mine from the eis and he mentioned that they were using it quite a lot with their rehabilitation in their athletes and there's like a, a bell going off in my head i was like oh that's when you use low load training because you can't use high load training so um from that point on, in about late 2011, 2012, I, I sort of bought my first set of cuffs up here in 2012 and started quite heavily reading the literature at, at that time because um, it wasn't really that well used in Australia. It wasn't really being used that much and certainly wasn't being used at N-Swiss. So I had to go through a process sort of where I really felt like I understood the mechanisms and everything that was going on with that type of training. And then I had to sort of work with the N-Swiss doctor at the time to make sure we had some processes going in place that made it safe and effective so yeah so i've been using it quite extensively since about 2012 and i definitely found it a useful tool as part of my toolbox as you said yeah that's for sure and and i think 
you know, it's used in the, the rehab setting and hopefully out of this podcast and, and we'll be able to tease a couple little things out there. So let's just start mm-hmm. illustrating with, with a couple of ways that you've been using it. Uh, and and yeah. just, you know, also the little things that I think have great value here is what did the athlete first think of it going, oh, this is incredible. How am I going to move? And then all of a sudden the light bulb moment goes off for them. So if you could just throw in and interject those those little comments as well, which I think can resonate to the listener. Yeah, so um, it's an interesting thing because I don't, I don't think in, in strength training or any type of training you get anything sort of for free. You know, It's not as if, oh, we're using a light load, it's easy. I learned quite on early on in my use of the practice that I had to have conversations with the athletes before we did it and say, look, I know you're only wearing a 20-kilogram weight vest or a 10-kilogram weight vest, but this is going to hurt. Um, this can be quite painful. You're going to get really sort of lactic in the legs. I, I use the term with the rowers. I'm like, this is going to be like the last 100 metres of your race, what you're going to feel here. So I have to spend a lot of time preparing them. It's, it's one, of, one of those things that um, I, I know when athletes get injured or, or, or sometimes we don't just use it with injured athletes, but um, when athletes get injured, uh, you can see them coming and approaching me for their program for that session. And okay, I think I'm a like, oh, I think it's a good opportunity to blood pressure. So you can just see their, their face melt down because... Because it is hard. It, 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 we do have to take their body to a place where we're getting sort of high levels of motor unit recruitment within this kind of training. So yeah, yeah, it's a it's a challenge. But I think the the athletes um they do value it. They understand why we do it. I do do a little bit of education with them on the the purposes of the training, um, on what why we're doing it, and um I think they understand that it allows us to keep building muscle mass and strength, even when they're maybe compromised in some ways. It's a really good analogy, I think when you can talk to them in their language. I think they truly understand that. And then when they know what's coming up and they experience it, I think they're a lot more tolerable to it uh, as opposed to just yeah. throwing it on yeah. and putting them in the deep end. And just with a couple of examples on, on how you've actually used it. Well, obviously, it allows us to get better strength gains with lower loads than we normally would. So um, for me, it's often with athletes who are maybe injured, athletes that are sort of impaired in some way, they can't do maybe more traditional training programs. So they might be, uh, say, long-standing back issues and, or, or something like that, or they may be an older athlete. Um, and we use it with sort of maybe when athletes like now, this is a perfect example, um, when athletes don't have access to full strength training equipment. So maybe we, we can't load them up and we traditionally would, and we'll use it with just some lighter dumbbells or some lighter weights or just body weight. Um, and so the few real reasons I use it outside of those would be to, to provide a different stimulus to the athlete, maybe just a variation in their training block. Um, I've used it quite a bit for just specific hypertrophy reasons to just give them a different hit and um, get some of that growth hormone response that we know we can get from the, the training. And the other thing I use it for sometimes is um, with some of my rowers where they do have sort of um, leg, leg strength discrepancies, I might use it as a bit of a finisher. So I might just put it at the end of the session and that we just whack it on for a few sets with their, their weaker leg and just finish the session on. They're probably my main reasons to use it. I'm not using it at this stage with anything outside of strength training. So I'm not using it. With, I know there's some strong research coming out with guys using it with some sort of energy systems training, but at this stage, we're not using it at all with that. Yeah, and in terms of injuries, I think that's a, a good point, and we'll just focus on that for a little bit. In terms of rowing, the back and ribs come to mind in terms of, of course, issues or potential injuries with rowing or overuse. What are the other main areas that come up with 
athletes within rowing in general and perhaps just within subgroups? Yeah, so they're definitely the main two injuries. Probably in the, our current cycle is rib stress fractures, which are our biggest challenge and probably our most time off of water. We do have a few sort of forearm-related issues, hamstrings, but um, I would say for, with regards to blood flow restriction, it is the, the rib injuries that are really are the ones that we use it with. So normally we, we can't really load their upper body that much. So putting a bar on the shoulders is, is a challenge. So we use weight vests quite a lot with those and maybe just single leg movements or step-ups, lunges, Bulgarians. Depending on where the fracture is, we can perhaps use the leg press a little bit. So we might do some of our um, higher load sort of neural sort of training with the, the leg press and then move on to blood flow restriction after that as an example. Yeah, and you were saying just in terms of using it in that rehab, but what you go to exercises that you might be using it and the reps and set schemes within that? I guess uh, when, when I started, I did spend a lot of time looking at research and pretty much all, all the research showed that you had to go to or close to fatigue. And there were some variations and there was obviously a lot of different protocols that were used, but they, they, they all had some similar emphasis. So I settled quite early on three or four sets to, to technical failure. Um, or close to technical failure with, with 30 seconds recovery most of the time, sometimes 60 seconds, and normally use continuous sort of restriction, so leave it on the whole time. That said, individuals do seem to vary quite a lot in how they respond to that, that training. So I, I have used intermittent occlusion with some athletes, um, and we use 60 seconds, as I said, but most of the time it's um, three, to, three or four lots of um, to failure or close to. I think that's really important as well because... I've had conversations with some people and they've said, oh, it's got to be 30 and then three sets of 15 as per literature. But I think you've really hit it perfect there that it's a technical failure and, and your first set's the key where you really want to set up that response where you get that feeling of lactate and that's that hormonal signaling that activates the all the different uh, signaling pathways, um, which gives us the response of BFR. And I think yeah. if you kind of take that lens off in the, the academic lens, which I think you've done really well there. So doing 75 rep protocol, yeah. it's, it's a technical failure and it's actually then reading the athlete because it's still a guide at the moment, this you know 50 to 80% of arterial occlusion. Yes, yeah. continuous is the best, but if you're getting a response with the athlete and it's intermittent, you look at literature, literature showing both work. And yeah. you know we need to find the individual response and the athletes you're working with it's not about a blanket mean average. It's about finding the individuality. So it's, that's refreshing yeah. to hear. And I think, you know, anyone listening to this really take that point well is that what Dave's done here is that individualization, read the athlete, spoken to it. And that's how I think you get future buy-in when if you want to do more high-intensity training or anything else with it, really. Yeah, I think um, I think a lot of the time, if you apply that sort of the three set, four sets to failure, for instance, you will probably get something a little bit like 30, 15, 15, 10 or something like that. So it won't be too far off. I think one thing that's important is when, when a lot of this research is going on and they're using these fixed protocols, they're using also a lot of it's using fixed percentage of one rep max and everything else. Now, I don't have one rep max beta for someone doing a step up with weight vest on or, or a Bulgarian squat. So like, I'm just using a, a load that I think is appropriate at the time and we're trying to place that physiological stimulus on the athlete. Now, 30, 15, 15 might be too easy for someone who's someone one athlete and might be too much 
for another. So I think it's, and then obviously we've got different pressures that are being used and everything else. I think in the research setting, it's really um, a controlled environment where they can apply a, a much more strict protocol. I don't, I don't think, feel like I have the luxury to do that. So I think it's important that like, we, the key thing is we're going to give these guys the appropriate stimulus. And I found the way we do it works quite well. I think that's spot on. And also what you were mentioning there with academia, when we read something, that's all they've done or that's all they're doing. You know, they're not, mm-hmm. you know, the, the athletes. So just to give an indication of the other training, so, you know, you're doing your on-water stuff, you're doing the cardiovascular. So what kind of volume are these athletes doing at the moment? Oh, they're under quite a lot. It's, it's interesting. I, I did a little bit of a catch-up with my um, fellow S&C staff at NSWIS last, last week, and I, I was talking about the program, which is a low-volume, low-and-low-load phase at the moment like giving them a bit of a break we're still going quite hard with our strength training and then i had to say to give them context to the group i said oh well they're on a low level low level training moment they're still doing 12 sessions in a week the sessions were shorter and less intense than normal but 12 sessions in a week's quite probably more than any of the other coaches in that discussion would have their athletes on even in their high training blocks so yeah up to um a standard week would be probably Three sessions Monday, three sessions Tuesday, two sessions Wednesday, three sessions Thursday, three sessions Friday, two sessions Saturday. So what's that, six, twelve, is that 16 sessions a week? That would be a, a standard week for us, um, of which basically two sessions each day would be of uh, some kind of rowing or aerobic kind of training with your technical there somewhere and we do we lift weights three times a week and with our group we do um, two core sessions a week as well so there are other specific sessions directed at the core musculature yeah it's a big volume there and with respect mm-hmm. to the exercises in bfr mm-hmm. you know what are you typically targeting a lot of the time like we were discussing that it'd be lower body strengthening i haven't used it a great deal for upper body stuff so mainly lower body, and we'll just see what the if there's limitations on the exercise. I generally use it for single leg work, not always, but I would say ninety percent of the time it's for single leg work. So we'll be using different variations of single leg work, so step ups, Bulgarian squats, lunges. They're probably the main three exercises. The single leg leg press I've used, double leg leg press I've used, but they they'd be the the main ones. Yeah, I think that's nice to reinforce as well because that's the beauty of bfr and i think it's the beauty of strength training that the simple stuff works really well and you don't really need to do anything fancy with them or with no. them on as well so we, we try and keep it simple some some individual just will just do it on there if they if they got a large leg strength discrepancy we might do more volume on one leg than the other or we might just do it on one leg than the other like as i said earlier as a finisher we tend to use exercises we use normally i don't, I don't see any real need to change it up or anything like that i don't have a huge amount of machines in our gym so like we it's not as if i can do leg extensions leg curls and stuff like that on machines so yeah we keep it simple with sort of functional movements i, I believe that would transfer to rowing as well they're your key exercises for mm-hmm. rowing for you like if you had an uninjured athlete what would you be uh, your pick exercises are fundamental probably depend how i choose to use it so if i if i'm just adding it into a strength session as normal i'd probably still go without the blood flow restriction for our key exercises so say say i put it in a normal program with one of my athletes that i think is appropriate we still do our olympic lifts and our, our heavy bilateral exercises early and I, I still think i'd be adding the, the blood flow restriction later on in a program as part of the single leg work or their posterior chain work and but whether I just use a weight vest there or whether I, I 
I'd use the opportunity to use bars or dumbbells and other thing that that would be dependent. But I'll be honest, most of the time I, I use it in a similar manner. I would use it for their their single leg work. Um, and the, the difference between doing it with an uninjured athlete would I'd probably tend to do it use it towards the end of the session as a bit of a finisher. Whereas with an injured athlete, I tend to work use it towards the start of the session, and we'll get a. Hopefully that will give a nice hormonal response to the rest of the session, whereas I think I'm probably getting that hormonal hit from the heavy bilateral work we might be doing earlier in the session anyway. Yeah, it's nice and clean. Yeah. And just as a little side point there, obviously we were speaking earlier about the injuries within rowing mm-hmm. and a lot of them revolve around stress fracture type issues. Yep. Um, there's actually a bit of evidence, I'm not sure if you, you read, there's a bit of evidence around increased markers of bone reformation. So sometimes I think about sports like rowing in this case, other sports which come to mind are triathlon. Um, There's a lot of stress reactions and stress fractures. If somehow systematically keeping them in could potentially help with this kind of recovery, it's more theoretical than... No, no, definitely interesting point. And um, I mean, one one thing I've been thinking of even in the last couple of weeks is, you know, we've got a big prep period now for the Olympics. Like like 65 weeks or something from this week and now i've bought a few extra sets of you from you to sort of work through this period i I think the option to use it before one of the the issues for me using it with uninjured athletes was just the logistics of having like eight nine ten athletes in the gym at one time only two cuffs or three cuffs now now i've got an increased number of cuffs so i'm thinking that well we've got a long prep i need to give some variation in their training stimulus throughout this next 12 months and obviously we'll use vary reps and sets and and volume and we'll vary the intensity and we'll vary exercises and velocity and everything else but I, I think given such a long period that we can use the the blood flow restriction a little bit more in the next year I'm looking forward to doing that and I think you raise a good point there about the the bone and maybe that's maybe that's an opportunity with some of those one girls that we think are a little bit more risk maybe we we do introduce that a little bit more and potentially also, if we, you know, we're talking about females because I know you, you train females, is that mm-hmm. I think menstrual cycle is also quite a hot topic at the moment. Uh, hormonal priming in another mm-hmm. subsection of sports science is another hot topic as well. So if we're thinking about how do we yeah. maximize performance of athletes full stop and hormones can help drive that. And then how can we also then improve the performance of a female athlete especially when we take their menstrual cycle into effect and there's obviously many things you know whether you're on contraceptives or you're not on contraceptives but are you able to somehow use that as a primer um, within a menstrual Mm -hmm. cycle to help elicit a more consistent result perhaps or a better training response which may have a build on so once again theoretical concepts that throwing out there that you know if you obviously you now have got the number of tools to actually implement it mm-hmm. and actually find out. So it's, you know, a potentially exciting time to see what you could do there. Yeah, inter- interesting sort of points you raised there, Chris. Um, obviously don't have any specific answers to those, but um, yeah, well worth considering and thinking about. Yeah. yeah, and once again, it's it's. I think it's really having a coach that's willing, like yourself, that's willing to – I guess, entertain yeah. the, these concepts and ideas and then, you know, having the cohort because there's going to be responders and non-responders as, as we all know. That's right. And, and you need to find, yeah. you know, I've got a decathlete I work with in certain areas, BFR works perfectly. In certain areas, he just doesn't like it. So, you know, you've got to know when to, it's like any tool. It's going to know when to put it in and when to take it out 
and and know when to just leave it alone. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I agree, and um, I think I think that's one of the key things about um the use of this. Oh, the same with any kind of method of training, but you, you have to. It's for me. It's a you know a n of one. You know, like we we can't assume that every one of our individuals going to respond the same way to this kind of training. You know, I see quite different behaviours in my girls, um, the way they respond with regards, those who are really aerobically sort of developed and those who are more anaerobically de- developed and they, they really respond differently. And yeah, so I think, I think we, we, you have to be individualised. I don't think you, you can't just prescribe for a whole squad the same way and expect them to respond the same way to this kind of training. Well, any training, but this kind of training. Yeah, that's a very good point. And we're recording this during the whole COVID shutdown at the moment. You said that you've you've mm-hmm. pushed a lot of cuffs out to, to your athletes, which is a great move for yourself. How, how are you coping as a coach? What are you doing? Have you done anything that's a little different? You know, a lot of people have moved to online type coaching where you are at the moment with uh coaching in this time yeah well, it's um it's funny time isn't it i mean obviously one of the things we all love most as coaches is coaching <laughs> we're not doing any coaching we're set behind the computer and writing programs and sort of making lots of phone calls and checking in with your your athletes on a, a weekly basis make sure they understand what they're doing um we've been doing a little bit of online coaching for our, our core sessions but um I haven't done any online coaching for our gym sessions. I think one one of the things that our head coach um, he's a he really pushes forward is making sure our athletes are sort of self driven and self dependent. And I think it's a really good opportunity for them to stand up and show that they they can be stay motivated and train in these times. So my my job I think really is to you know just touch base with them, encourage them, make sure they they know what they're doing, probably provide. A, enough variation in their program for them to keep motivated and keep ticking along we've had to make big decisions about how, how we put together our training program now i think that's it's a challenge like we, we're just coming into our probably last three months of training into a olympic games i um, mean we had a world cup series the world cup series going on now um and that's all changed so do you do you scrap your rest of this year's plan or and or and move on to start prepping for next year or do you continue pushing through some sort of Speed strength, strength speed blocks to train that sort of physical quality because we haven't touched it for a while or we haven't really gone hard at it for a while. So lots of decisions to be made and, um, yeah, we're just trying to work through those at the moment a little bit. Yeah, they're all very good questions. I think all coaches and all athletes across all sports are having those discussions and, you know, more will be known once, I guess, we can get out and start training normally, Mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah, that's right. But I'm, I'm happy with the where the the girls are at with regards that they've got good equipment we've got pretty good sales being supported nas- nationally by the national state institutes and the and the club so they're able to train pretty well and and those that haven't got full setups we're, we're really using the blood flow restriction quite heavily to make sure we're still getting some strength gains yeah and just in closing any other last stories or bits and pieces that want to add to it I mean, I haven't looked too much into, and I know you're much more across this, uh, into the, um, the use of energy systems trainings and stuff like that. But I, I remember working with a 400-meter runner a number of years ago, and like, this was one of the first athletes I started using with, and she, she was really quick on to respond that, oh, it's, it's, this is definitely making a difference in my, my lactic running sessions. So I was always interested with that, and I, I think there's probably a lot more can be delved into in that area. 
So that's one thing. And I, I just still really think, Chris, I think it's still underutilized. Um, I, I, th- I know it's being utilized a lot more in sporting environments, but I feel like in clinical environments, working with the elderly, ill patients, I mean, I know they've probably got a lot more um, contraindications to actually using it and maybe risk factors, but I still think that's an area which can be utilized. If you look at some of the early studies by Takarada and, and those guys, just walking at four kilometers an hour and getting some decent strength gains, you know, I feel like that should be being done more. I'm not across really what's going on in clinical environments, but I, I, I suspect that's not happening, and I, I really think that could be pushed a lot more. I totally agree, and there's lots of really interesting papers out there. There's some stuff on ischemic preconditioning, which, as you know, sure. uh, but for yeah. everyone else, it's to, when you put on passively, you and you just sit there and you inflate it and deflate it in different cycles. And in athletes, it's a bit hit and miss, but in gen pop, and in particular with stroke patients, is uh, they found that, I was just talking to a, a researcher the other day, and he's saying when you actually apply it on the other side or the unaffected stroke side, that you actually have some sort of benefit leading onto the stroke-affected side. And then you start to think about if you're able to produce good changes in gen pop and also in special populations as well, decrease muscle wastage, improve pain Mm -hmm. quality as well you know not only as you said you could walk quite slowly and get gains in strength and fitness but you think about how many people out there in pain all the time it decreases joint and tendon pain and i know does that well in athletes and just to be able to do that to get quality life back i think has as you alluded to has huge ramifications Mm -hmm. in that type of population yeah I'd, i'd like to see where that goes in the future yeah, uh, I totally agree. And I think it's about, people say it's still a novel stimulus. Well, it's not novel anymore. It's been around since the 1960s in Japan. It's used systematically over there. It's just, I think, subgroups of people that are open and willing and are educated about it. Like, you know, yourself, you've gone away, you've self-educated and you've used it. And then you, you have a level of comfort with it. And whereas a lot of people still see it as potentially, you know, is it the name, blood flow? Like I have one athlete, she gets freaked out with the word blood. So <laughs> it's, it is what it is. Yeah. So it's, you know, is it the name? Who knows what it is? But I think just over time, it, it will have a slow swell and there's just subpopulations which are having fantastic responses. And um, that's all you need is you, that end of one, mate. If you're working with athletes like myself and having good success, there's some athletes I don't use it on um, because there's no need to at that time. And it's, it's about being able to pick your battles and, and know how to pick them well. No, agreed. That's great. That's fantastic, Dave. So I probably went a little bit all over the place there, but you know, I was able to get a feel for some of your just your general strength stuff, and and that for me that was really interesting, as well as how that philosophy then feeds through into just training athletes in general, but also then how you incorporate in BFR. Great. Well, thanks for having me on, Chris. It was a good chat. Pleasure. Now, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, social media, where you're at with that. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not the strongest in that side of things, Chris. I don't push it too hard. But um, if people want to contact me, probably um, I, I do use LinkedIn a little bit, so that's probably the best bet. Yeah, fantastic. And I'll obviously put those details in the show notes as well. So I've known Dave for a while now, and love having chats with him, and and always got time. So he has got a wealth of experience, and always just because you're not on Instagram or Twitter doesn't mean <laughs> there's there's some great coaches that and great scientists that aren't on there prolifically and just because it doesn't happen on Facebook doesn't mean that it didn't happen. So, 
thanks for your time, David. I really do appreciate it. I know, I know you're busy doing work with the athletes online and contacting people. So that's really great. You could take time. So thank you very much. No problems. Thanks for having me on. And that's all today for this episode of BFR Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to take part in the podcast, please contact me through my website or on social media channels at Chris Cavillio. For more information and to order a set of your own BFR cuffs, please visit my website at sportsrehab.com.au. Thanks for listening and keep the pump.